All right. Well, hey, good morning, everyone. It's good to see you here this morning. Trust you're having a good weekend so far. Uh, today, I think, today, October 1st, this is my favorite month, so I'm really excited. Uh, yeah, so there's a lot of birthdays in my life group are in October, so they're excited too. Um, well, we are going to continue in this new series we started last week entitled The Fading of Forgiveness. Now, last week, Pastor Chris, I thought, did an excellent job kicking off the series. And basically what he did in that message was he walked us through what our current cultural moment is as it relates to the topic of forgiveness. And what we saw there is that this concept and this practice uh, of forgiveness is quickly fading from our society. In fact, there are certain segments of our society that would even say forgiveness is wrong or unjust or even evil itself. And so again, we're kind of in this weird uh, and unique moment as it relates to this topic of forgiveness. Um, But not only that, Chris then went on from there to talk about uh, the history of forgiveness as it relates to other cultures and other religions and other time periods throughout uh, history. But then he, can, he finished by comparing all of that with what the Bible has to say about it. And what we saw is that forgiveness is a uniquely Judeo-Christian concept, and it certainly in its fullest expression is a Christian-only concept, meaning even though it was introduced and touched on in Judaism and therefore in the Old Testament, it wasn't fully worked out or fully realized until we get to the New Testament with Jesus and the cross. You see, because of all of that, it really shouldn't surprise us that forgiveness is beginning to fade in our culture since it is a uniquely Christian concept. And I I think all of us would acknowledge that our culture is obviously in the midst of rejecting the Christian worldview. You see, as our culture becomes more and more pagan in its understanding, it'll either outright reject Christian concepts and teachings Or at the very least, it'll twist them in such a way that they are only half-truths or incomplete truths. And so again, certainly forgiveness is fading in our culture. However, though, one of the reasons I wanted to do this series and one of the reasons I advocated so hard for it is because I am personally concerned that even in the church, we are beginning to move away from this crucial aspect of our faith. And I'm afraid that we are instead beginning to adopt the world's mindset and practices. I mean, things like cancel culture and ghosting people and slandering others, either in person or more often online, are normal and celebrated uh, in our world. But I fear that some of those same behaviors and mindsets are starting to be normalized and accepted in the church. Instead of practicing things like church discipline or Matthew 18 type confrontation where we go to someone and call out their sin uh, or their offense against us, instead we, we ghost people, we block them on social media, or we slander them to others, or we try to ruin their reputations in some way. You see, I think in the pressure and the anxiety of the last couple of years with things like COVID and the lockdowns and elections and racial tension and economic stresses and all of it, we have gotten to a place where many of us who call ourselves believers have forgotten what it means to live in the new community or the new family of Jesus. You see, in the new community of Jesus, what the New Testament calls the church, we are to be quick to hear slow to speak and slow to anger. 
And the new family of Jesus, we are to forgive as we have been forgiven. We are to show grace as we have been shown grace. We are to love others as ourselves. We are to overlook minor offenses and to believe the best about others. We are to avoid things like mind reading and making assumptions about others' intentions and motivations. And not only that, but when we do believe someone has wronged us or sinned against us, we are to confront them in love in order to give them a chance to repent. You see, we don't run away. We don't cut off relationships the way that the world does. No, we are to hang in there with people. We are to work towards peacemaking and reconciliation. And yes, of course, there are exceptions. And of course, there are cases where things like boundaries are good and right and necessary. But again, I'm just concerned that perhaps we, as the church of Jesus Christ, we have begun to move away from what the Bible says about these things, and we have instead adopted the world's perspective and practices. And look, maybe I'm thinking about forgiveness a lot lately because at the age of 38, I know as the soon-to-be lead pastor of this church, I'm gonna need a lot of grace and forgiveness from you all, right? Like, I'm, I'm not perfect. I make mistakes. I am sometimes too emotional. I sometimes say things too strongly or carelessly even. Just ask my fellow elders or our staff or my family for that matter. Um, for example, I was in a meeting here at the church a couple months ago, and we were discussing a pretty intense topic, and I, I think I was misunderstanding some people and, and their intentions. And so I spoke up and I said something pretty strongly, and in doing so, I overstepped some bounds particularly with one individual. And so the next day I felt like I was supposed to reach out to them and apologize for my behavior. And, and thankfully this person was very kind and was very willing to extend grace and forgiveness to me, which I am really thankful for. And so I don't know about you, but I know that I often have times in my life where I need someone to show me grace and to extend to me forgiveness. See, when you look at the New Testament and when you see it talk about the end times or the last days, one of the things you notice that kind of strikes you is the terrible descriptions of how people will treat each other. For example, in Matthew 24, uh, in the Olivet Discourse, Jesus says this, that in the last days, the love of many will grow cold. Um, Paul in 2 Timothy 3, he says, but mark this, there will be terrible times in the last days. People will be lovers of themselves, lovers of money, boastful, proud, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, without love, unforgiving, slanderous, and on and on he goes. And look, I, I don't know if we're in the end times or not. I know that many of you think that we are, and perhaps you're right, but what I do know is that I see most of those behaviors in our society. And again, I think as believers, many of us are tempted to get caught up in them and to emulate those behaviors as well. And so for this series, we're going to focus on one of these aspects, and it's perhaps the most important, and that is forgiveness. Now, this last month or so is by far the most that I've ever thought about or researched or studied the topic of forgiveness. And after doing so, I think I agree with theologian Cornelius Plantanga, which by the way, what an amazing name. Um, he's got to be smart. Uh, here, but here's what he said. 
He said, anybody who thinks hard about forgiveness will start a lot more rabbits than he can catch. I don't know fully what that means, but I think it means, you know, something. But uh, he he says, uh, the topic raises a whole nest of questions, and the good answers will seldom be the easy ones. And again, after thinking about this and reading about it for a month or so, I think he's probably right. There is a degree... Uh, There is a degree to which this topic is complex. It's complicated, and yet it is absolutely essential. And you could even say, I think, it is at the very core or at the very heart of the Christian faith and practice. And so because of that, I don't think we can afford to avoid it. And so if you have a Bible, I want to invite you now, go ahead and turn to Matthew chapter 18. Um, If you need to borrow a chair Bible or a sanctuary Bible, the passage will be found on page 823, down at the bottom of the page. And once you find it, uh, go ahead and stand as we read Matthew chapter 18, starting in verse 21. Then Peter came up and said to him, Lord, how often will my brother sin against me and I forgive him? As many as seven times? Jesus said to him, I do not say to you seven times, but 77 times. Therefore, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his servants. When he began to settle, one was brought to him who owed him 10,000 talents. And since he could not pay, his master ordered him to be sold with his wife and children and all that he had and payment to be made. So the servant fell on his knees, imploring him, have patience with me and I will pay you everything. And out of pity for him, the master of the servant released him and forgave him the debt. But when that same servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii. And seizing him, he began to choke him, saying, pay what you owe. So his fellow servant fell down and pleaded with him, have patience with me and I will pay you. He refused and he went and put him in prison until he should pay back the debt. When his fellow servants saw what had taken place, they were greatly distressed, and they went and reported to their master all that had taken place. Then his master summoned him and said to him, you wicked servant, I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me, and should not you have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? And in his anger, his master delivered him to the jailers until he should pay all his debt. So also my heavenly Father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. This is God's word. Let's pray. Father, we do invite your Holy Spirit's presence into our time this morning. We know he's already here. But Father, we pray that the Spirit would give us eyes to see today, ears to hear, and hearts to know, to understand, and ultimately hearts to obey your word. And so we give this time to you. We ask you to work in only the way that you can. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. You can go and take a seat. Um, My goal for today is to just try to answer some basic questions around this topic of forgiveness. And then next week, we'll dive into some of the more complicated or nuanced issues around it. And so perhaps you could think of this week as Forgiveness 101, whereas next week will be Forgiveness 201. And so in light of that, for today, our outline is just very simply a couple questions. Number one, why should we forgive? 
Why is this so crucial or critical? And then number two, we'll try to answer, what exactly is forgiveness? And how do we do it? And then we'll finish our time by looking at some resources that can help us when we are stuck. Now, like Chris, uh, some of the insights I'm going to share with you today come from uh, Tim Keller's last book before he passed away entitled Forgive, which um, both of us thought was pretty good. And so you may want to check that out for some further study. Um, But starting with this first question here of why should we forgive? Look again at verse 21. Then Peter came up and said to him, Lord, how often will my brother sin against me and I forgive him? As many as seven times? And Jesus said to him, I do not say to you seven times, but 77 times. Okay, so what we see here is that this section, uh, in this section, is that Peter starts off with a question for Jesus. And, And basically what Peter asked here is this. He says, you know, how many times do I have to forgive someone who sins against me? And then in Peter-like fashion, he tacks on his own thoughts and tries to answer his own question. And he says, up to seven times? And it's clear from knowing who Peter is and what he's like that he probably thought he nailed it out of the park, right? Like he probably thought, man, look how loving, look how generous I am, Lord. Ain't I great? In fact, some scholars uh, have said that the rabbis during this time period taught that you had to forgive someone up to three times a day. And so Peter is actually going above and beyond that with his answer. However, though, like always, he's put in his place very gently by Jesus because Jesus responds by saying, no, Peter, I do not say to you seven times, but 77 times. Now, look, almost all commentators agree in saying this. Jesus is not actually concerned about math or calculations. Meaning he's not actually saying you only have to forgive someone up to 77 times. But hey, you know, if they keep pushing you, if they keep offending you and get to number 78, well, then you're off the hook. No, that's not what Jesus is saying. Instead, what Jesus is doing is he is challenging the disciples' understanding of limited forgiveness. And he's closing up any loopholes that they may be looking for when it comes to this topic. In fact, Jesus immediately launches into a very striking parable to prove his point. And he ends the parable in verse 35 by saying this, So also my heavenly Father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. And so with that, based on verses 22 and verse 35, what we see is that the first reason you and I should forgive is very simply because we have been commanded to. And look, it's not just here. This command is literally all over the New Testament. It's in the Sermon on the Mount. It's in the Lord's Prayer. It's in other teachings of Jesus, like Mark eleven twenty five. 25. Um, Paul also issues the same command several times in his letters. Uh, for example, in Ephesians 4 and in Colossians 3. And so again, why should you and I forgive? Well, we should, for be, we should forgive because we have been commanded to in the Scriptures. And look, with this, I I think because we are Protestants, uh, we do need to just take a minute here and deal with uh, maybe some of the trickiness of some of those verses and the commands, because almost all of them say something like, forgive others or you won't be forgiven. In fact, that is one of the main points of the parable we just looked at. And so what are we to do with that? I mean, is the Bible really saying that you and I are saved by our good works rather than through faith in Jesus. 
Or another way you could say it is, is the Bible actually teaching, if you forgive people, you will go to heaven, and if you don't forgive people, you will go to hell? Well, again, I think we always have to remember the hermeneutic principle of interpret Scripture with Scripture. And when we do that, I think we have to conclude that these passages are not saying that. Now, that doesn't mean that we shouldn't take them seriously or that they shouldn't put a little bit of fear in us as we read them. However, though, when we look at the scriptures as a whole, we see over and over again that you and I are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. See, actually, just a few chapters on from this in Matthew 25, we see Jesus talk about the sheep and the goats. Uh, Actually, Ezekiel mentioned this passage. And the sheep and the goats is this analogy that is comparing unbelievers to believers. And there we see Jesus talk about how concern for the poor and care for the sick and visiting those who are in prison are all tied to eternal life or eternal punishment based on whether or not you did those things. And so similar to this, you're left thinking like, well, so wait a second, am I saved by doing those things or am I saved by forgiving others? And if that is true, if those things are true, then why did Jesus have to come uh, in the first place? Why did the Son of God have to come to earth and die? Couldn't we have just obeyed those commands without him dying? And not only that, but what are we to make of someone like the thief on the cross? I mean, all the thief on the cross did when you read that story is simply express faith and trust in who Jesus was. And yet, Jesus responds to him by saying, today, you will be with me in paradise. And he definitely didn't uh, have, you know, he definitely didn't have time to care for the poor or visit those in prison or forgive everyone in his life before he died. And not only that, but what are we to make of Paul's writings where he says things like, by grace, you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing, it is the gift of God, not as a result of works. And so again, when we interpret scripture with scripture, we see that that can't be what Jesus is saying here in Matthew 18. And so what is he saying? Well, I think what Jesus is saying is that if you and I don't forgive others, if we don't have forgiveness in our heart towards others, it is a sign, or in other words, it's proof that you haven't really understood or received his forgiveness of you, right? Like Tim Keller, he talks about this uh, classic analogy of a tree. He says, if you can imagine two apple trees side by side in late October, and if one tree has apples all over it and the other tree doesn't have any, you would naturally conclude that one tree is healthy and alive and the other tree is diseased and dying. However, though, fruit on a tree doesn't make a tree alive or make it healthy. But the fruit does reveal or it proves that the tree is alive and healthy. And in the same way, forgiving others doesn't save us or make us Christians, but it does show and it does prove that we have been touched by God and that we have experienced grace through the gospel. And so why should we forgive? Well, again, we are to forgive because we have been commanded to, but I think we should also forgive because it is the fitting thing to do for a Christian. For someone who has been touched by grace themselves, it only makes sense that they would extend grace and forgiveness to others. I mean, as the parable points out, how could you be forgiven for such a great debt? How could you be shown mercy and yet not forgive others? 
And so those would be a couple of reasons, but I wanna just take a minute here and, and just drill down a little bit more on our motivation for forgiveness, on why we should forgive. Of course, given the fact that we are commanded to should be all the motivation that we need in order to obey God's word, right? But I wanna just talk for a minute about this idea of who is forgiveness primarily for? In other words, should we forgive primarily for our sake as the one who was wronged, or should we forgive primarily for the sake of the one who wronged us? Now, I quoted a guy at the beginning of the message who talked about when you think deeply about this topic, you end up starting more rabbits than you can catch, whatever that means. And, uh, and this question here is certainly one of those kind of questions. In fact, different theologians and Christian therapists and scholars debate this very thing. You see, you have some on one side who argue from maybe the, what you could say is the therapeutic side of things, who will say that forgiveness is primarily about freeing yourself from hatred and bitterness towards the person who wronged you. Right? Like this is maybe when you hear things like this, you know, unforgiveness is like drinking poison and expecting the other person to die, or you know, maybe you, you know, things like you can't heal where there's still hate. Again, what this side is arguing is that the primary reason you and I should forgive is because unforgiveness is really, really bad for your soul. In other words, what they are saying is that you should forgive primarily for your sake, not necessarily for the sake of the one who hurt you. Now, there are others on the other side of the debate, men like Keller and Cornelius Plantanga and uh, a guy named Gregory Jones, who would say, yes, you are right. There is a side of forgiveness that really does benefit and bless the one who does the forgiving. However, though, the primary purpose or the primary benefit of extending forgiveness is not for yourself or some therapeutic reason, but rather it is for the sake of community and for the sake of the one who committed the wrong. And I have to say, after studying this topic for the last couple of weeks and looking at the, the various passages and the various verses which talk about forgiveness, I think this second understanding is the right one. I mean, even when we look at our story in the parable in Matthew 18, it's really clear that the reason the king forgave the man his debt was because it was an act of mercy and love towards the man which healed their relationship not primarily because the king was worried about unforgiveness creating bitterness and hatred in his heart. But not only that, I think it's also super clear that the man who was forgiven the debt was the chief benefactor, not the king who forgave it. Now look, I know the story goes on and he you know, ends up getting in trouble anyway, but, but just ignore that part for right now. Let's go to the like halfway in the story where he actually is forgiven and things are good for like a half a second. Now look, in saying all of that, it is still true though that you and I are blessed when we obey God and forgive others, but it's just not the primary reason we do it. It's not primarily about us. And maybe you're thinking to yourself, well, if, if both are true, then why even bring it up? Well, the reason I brought it up is because I think we live in a very therapeutic culture right now a very self-focused and self-absorbed culture, one that is obsessed with things like self-care. 
And while on the one hand, that has given us some important insights and, and some important tools for looking inside and figuring out what is going on with us and why we think the way that we do and why we act the way that we do. However, though, on the other hand, if all you and I do is look inward and focus on ourselves and focus on self-improvement, then I don't think that we are following the way of Jesus. Because Jesus primarily taught us to be others-focused. And so because of that, forgiveness is not, I don't think, primarily about us and how it makes us feel, but it is primarily about extending grace to the offender with the hope of relational healing and the restoration of community. Now, look, please don't hear me as trashing therapy or counseling because I'm not. I've done my fair share of those things and have benefited greatly. I'm just merely trying to point out that I think we have to be careful to think biblically on this topic and to understand the emphasis on who the Bible says forgiveness is for. Because again, we are living in this moment that is very therapeutic and self-focused, but the whole point of going inward or the whole point of dealing with your past even is so that you can emerge healed in order to love others better than you were before. And so that would be the first question here of why should we forgive and who is forgiveness for? But let's go to those other questions, which is this. What exactly is forgiveness or what are the stages of forgiveness and how do we do it? Well, to answer these questions, let's jump here into the parable a little uh, bit deeper. Look again at verse 23. Therefore, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his servants. When he began to settle, one was brought to him who owed him 10,000 talents. Okay, so the first thing that we see here is that the man who owed the debt was confronted and the debt was named. And really, when you think about it, that is the first logical step in forgiving someone. You see, in order to forgive someone, you have to acknowledge that something wrong has happened to you. In other words, you can't forgive, someone, uh, you can't forgive something that you can't see. You can't forgive until you come to terms with uh, the fact that something sinful was done to you. And as part of that, uh, one of the things you're doing by naming the offense is you are doing away with excuses. You see, excusing something and forgiving something are very different. In fact, C.S. Lewis put it like this. He said, but there is all the difference in the world between forgiving and excusing. Forgiveness says, yes, you have done this thing, but I accept your apology and I will never hold it against you and everything between us two will be exactly what it was before. But excusing says, I see that you couldn't help it or that you didn't mean it or you weren't really to blame. You see, forgiveness is not excusing what happened nor is it condoning what happened. In this first step, by naming the offense, what you are doing is you are acknowledging that what the person did to you was, in fact, wrong. That's why if you try to uh, apologize to someone and they say something like, you know what, it's okay, don't worry about it, it wasn't a big deal, or you know what, I, I know you didn't mean it. You see, that kind of language is unhelpful because it is trying to excuse the sin rather than facing it. 
And yet we do this all the time. I mean, I'm guilty of this. Um, my kids are really guilty of this, right? Like I'll say something to them like, Mabel, I'm really sorry for raising my voice at you or getting frustrated with you when I asked you to brush your teeth and you definitely did not do that, you know? And then often uh, Mabel or one of my other kids will respond by saying, you know what, that's okay, daddy. And I know what they mean by that. They're trying to forgive me, but what I've tried to correct them on that by saying, no, actually, it's not okay, right? It's not okay to sin. What daddy did was wrong. It was sinful. And I'm asking you to forgive me. And then often, you know, I, I think kids are just hardwired to want to forgive their parents, which I'm really thankful for. Um, <laughs> And often she'll respond or someone will respond by saying, I forgive you, daddy. And, and I know it may seem like a subtle thing, but it's actually really important because again, you can't forgive what you don't acknowledge as being wrong. And so what we see here in this parable is that the first step is being, is being honest about the debt and naming it. But I think it also includes, if possible, confronting the one who did it. Now, we might get into some of the nuances of this next week by talking about what do you do if someone has died or what do you do if someone's not around or what do you, what do, you do if they're like a, not a safe person to be around? But with those complications aside, what we see is that confronting the one who wronged us is a crucial part of the process as well, which is why I think the therapeutic only approach often falls short. Because often, you know, counselors or the, the therapeutic approach will say, you know what, you don't even have to confront the person. Just forgive them in your heart and move on. However, though, what we see here in the parable and actually what we see earlier in Matthew 18 is that we are to confront the person and name the offense. In that famous section right before this in Matthew 18, 15, Jesus says, if your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. Now, unfortunately, um, I had this experience happen to me a couple weeks ago. Uh, I just feel like I'm telling on myself this whole message is like, you know, they might re be rethinking maybe I shouldn't be the lead pastor next. But uh, um, I was at my oldest son's soccer game a couple weeks ago, and it was a tournament. And it was the first game of the tournament, and we were losing to a team that we were clearly better than. And unfortunately, that's been sort of the theme of their season. In fact, they've lost like six or seven games, all by less than one goal. And many times they were the much better team. And so it's been kind of a frustrating season. And so here we are in this game. Again, it's a tournament, so there's a lot of pressure. And we're losing to a team that I'm pretty sure we were better than. And then all of a sudden, there were some coaching decisions that myself and a couple other dads uh, got kind of worked up about on the sideline. In fact, and I'm not going to tell on him, but some of the other dads were saying some pretty harsh stuff. And, and so in the heat of the moment, with all of that emotion and all that angst, I end up saying some things out loud about the coaching that was not very nice. In fact, I think I said something like, what is happening right now? This coaching is garbage. Now, look, I am ashamed to admit this, and it was definitely not one of my finer moments in life, but the reality is, is that it happened. Now, these are 12-year-old kids, and it's club soccer, so it's a little more competitive, but even still, the coaches are dads from the team. And so this is not like me critiquing Ryan Day uh, on my couch at home. No, it's, it's more personal than that. Well, we end up losing the game, and afterwards, one of the coaches' wife goes over and tells the three coaches what just happened on the sideline and what was said. 
And uh, so fast forward a little bit, we're driving home from the game and all of a sudden my phone rings and it's the head coach. Now the head coach and I have a, a good relationship. He's a fellow believer, he's a good dad, he's a good soccer coach. And so I see him calling and I think, uh-oh, I think I'm in trouble. <laughs> and uh, so long story short, he calls me out. He confronts me. And he very lovingly but very sternly uh, again called me out and I end up apologizing to him and admitting that what I did was wrong and that it was not okay. And to be honest, the whole experience was humbling, it was embarrassing, it was, you know, it was awkward. But in the end, I'm really thankful that he, A, confronted me and called me out on my sin, and B, that he extended me grace and forgiveness for messing up. And so again, what I think we see here is that the first step in forgiving someone is to name the debt and to be honest about it to not excuse it, but also to confront the offender if possible. The second step, though, I think is to have pity and compassion on the person who hurts you. Look again at verse 23. Therefore, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his servants. When he began to settle, one was brought to him who owed him 10,000 talents. And since he could not pay, his master ordered him to be sold with his wife and children and all that he had and payment to be made. So the servant fell on his knees imploring him, have patience with me and I will pay you everything. And out of pity for him, the master of, the serv of that servant released him and forgave the debt. So the king calls his servant, he names the debt. It's clearly more than he or anyone else could ever pay. The king says he's going to have him and his family sold into slavery in order to recoup some of the losses. But then there's this key moment in the story in verse 26 where the man falls to his knee and he begs the king for mercy. And then in verse 27, it says that the king took pity on him, or I like better, the New American Standard says he had compassion towards him. You see, I think if you and I are gonna be able to forgive someone, one of the steps that has to happen along the way, maybe not at first, but at some point, is this sense or this emotion of pity or compassion for the one who has wronged you. You see, one of the dangerous things that can happen when we are sinned against, particularly if it is something more intense or more grievous, is we begin to demonize or even sometimes characterize the person into the very sin that they committed against us. Um, Keller talks about this in his book. He writes this. He says, if a cartoonist wants to make someone look ludicrous, she can create a character. She can take something about a person's face that's unusual or a bit unattractive and exaggerate it, making it prominent so that the person looks foolish. That's exactly what your heart does when someone wrongs you. You think of them one-dimensionally in terms of that one thing that they've done to you. If somebody has lied to you, you tell yourself, she lied because she's just a liar. But if you're ever caught in a lie and someone asks you why you lied, you say, well, yes, but it's complicated. Right, like that's true, that's what we do. Uh, very similar to this, author Lewis Smedes in his book, The Art of Forgiveness says this, he says, we filter the image of our villain through the gaze of our wounded memories, and in the process, we alter his reality. We shrink him to the size of what he did to us. He becomes the wrong he did. 
See, one of the reasons we do this is because when we demonize or dehumanize someone, it makes it a whole lot easier to continue to hate them or to continue to justify why it's okay that we're not forgiving them. And yeah, part of having pity on someone or part, in, part of having compassion on them is by putting yourself in their shoes. Perhaps part of that is just letting yourself uh, be curious, having curious thoughts and questions like, you know, I, I wonder what was going on in their life that led them to doing this or that thing. Or, you know, I, I wonder what kind of day that person had who cut me off. Or, you know what, I wonder what their childhood was like. Maybe their parents weren't very nice to them, right? Like those kinds of curious thoughts or curious questions can give way or can give birth to things like mercy and compassion in our hearts for another person. Now, again, I do think we have to be careful that in that, 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 that we're not excusing what someone did, right? Like that's, we've already talked about that. Excusing something is not the same as forgiving it. But what we are trying to do by having those curious questions is to empathize and to understand and to ultimately have compassion towards them. And really, I I think the point of the parable and the main way we develop pity and compassion for the person who wronged us is by remembering our own sinfulness, by remembering the debt that we owed to God and yet the compassion and the grace and the mercy that he had towards us. Um, Theologian Miroslav Wolf, another really cool name, uh, puts it like this. Forgiveness flounders because I exclude the enemy from the community of humans, even as I exclude myself from the community of sinners. But no one can be in the presence of the God of the crucified Messiah for long without overcoming this double exclusion without transposing the enemy from the sphere of the monstrous into the sphere of shared humanity and herself from the sphere of proud innocence into the sphere of common sinfulness. You see, the saying really is true, but for the grace of God go I. And I think you and I need to always remember that. We not only are capable of sin and evil, we have already committed sin and evil in our lives for which God has forgiven us. And so that reality, that knowledge should both humble us and it should move us to have compassion and pity for the one who wronged us. And so that would be the second stage of forgiveness, have compassion on the one who hurt you. The third stage, and perhaps the hardest stage, is to actually cancel or absorb the debt yourself. Again, if we look at our parable, what we see is that in verse 27, the king actually has to forgive the debt. Uh, The Greek word used for forgive here means to cancel or to remit a debt. Now, what exactly does that mean? Well, to remit something is to refuse to make the other person who owes you pay it back. And instead, you are the one who pays. And this here really is at the heart of what it means to forgive someone. You see, when you are wronged or when you are sinned against, someone then now owes you a debt. But in forgiving them, you cancel the debt, which means that you are now the one who has to pay. Um, For example, Keller, he gives this really helpful analogy when he talks about if if a guest comes into your home, 
and they carelessly break an expensive lamp of yours, but then they apologize profusely and you know, you tell them, don't worry about it. In other words, you forgive them. However, though, what, what, doesn't, what, what happens now is that either you must pay to replace the lamp or you must uh, go without the lamp. But either way, what that means is that you now bear the cost of what this guest has done rather than them bearing it. And unfortunately for us, there is always a cost or a debt to sin. You see, forgiveness entails you and I absorbing the debt, whereas vengeance is you trying to get paid back. And look, this is really hard because our culture loves vengeance, right? Like just look at the political scene or look at the culture wars. We love getting back at each other. As one guy I heard this week said, he said, you know, forgiveness is a challenge because our culture doesn't really like forgiveness. We like vengeance. They are not called the forgivers. They are called the avengers, right? Like even our superheroes reflect this attitude. However, though, as Lewis Smeads points out, vengeance never really satisfies because you always believe the other person who hurt you uh, hurts you worse than what you pay them back with which is probably why family feuds go on and on for generations. And part of that is because I think uh, the reason for that is because none of us are impartial or fair judges, right? We always have a bias. We always think our perspective is the right one, which is why I believe the Bible tells us in Romans 12, 19, beloved, never avenge yourself, but leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written, vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. Now again, next week, we will get into all the nuances of forgiveness as it relates to justice and criminal punishment and all of that. But for now, suffice to say, vengeance is not an option. And therefore, forgiveness means giving up our right to get even. Now with this, I think we have to be honest about the fact that forgiveness does involve suffering, which is why it's so hard for us. In fact, it's not just suffering, it's, it's a unique kind of suffering because it's voluntary suffering, which is even harder. Um, author Dan Hamilton put it like this in his essay on forgiveness. He writes, pain is the consequence of sin. There is no easy way to deal with it. Wood, nails, and pain are the currency of forgiveness. You see, by absorbing the debt and canceling it, you are choosing to suffer, which is therefore painful, but it is a kind of suffering that is worth it because it will ultimately lead to a greater good, both for yourself and for the one you forgive. And so that's the third step here of forgiveness, absorb the debt. The last step then is to release the one who wronged you. If we go back to the parable, what we see is that after having compassion on the servant, which leads to him then canceling the debt, the last thing the king does is he releases the servant. In other words, what that means is that he no longer treats the servant as if there is anything still between them. You see, in the story, before the debt was canceled, the man and his family were going to be thrown into prison or sold into slavery. I can't remember which one. But now after the debt uh, has been canceled, he is released and his relationship with the king is restored. 
Now, I think part of what that means in terms of releasing someone is that if the previous step is canceling the debt and therefore giving up your right to vengeance or getting even, I think in releasing the person, you are working towards what Keller calls willing the good of the wrongdoer or what Smeads calls revising your feelings towards them. You see, the reality is, is that the process of forgiveness isn't totally complete until you are able to change the way that you feel, view, or treat the person who wronged you. Now, it's at this point that I think we have to acknowledge that forgiveness is both a decision and it's often a long process. In other words, forgiveness is a conscious decision made at a particular moment in time, but it's also a process that will most likely take longer than just that initial decision. You see, often when someone hurts us or wrongs us, especially when it's a major offense, often one of the feelings or emotions that springs up within us is one of hate, or at the very least, or at the very least dislike. And typically at first, it's more of a, an active kind of hate. We're like, you might actually tell the person, I hate you, or tell others, I don't like that guy, he's a jerk. However, though, as you begin to walk down this process or this path of forgiveness, and as you choose to forgive, your feelings towards them might move from maybe an active hate to what we might call passive hate. Now, passive hate is when you perhaps no longer say out loud that you hate them, but even still, when you hear that something bad happens to them, you find a sense of satisfaction or pleasure in that. And so maybe you find out that the person you, uh, that hurt you is getting a divorce or they lost a job or something else, and you think to yourself, okay, good. I'm glad that they now are suffering. And yet the reality is, is that passive hate is just as bad as active hate because at the end of the day, it is still wishing for something bad to happen to them. Whether it's you inflicting the pain or them uh, directly or someone else or something else. However, though, in the last stage of releasing the person, we are working towards that place where we desire goodness and grace for the one who wronged us. And Lewis Smeads, again in his book, describes the process like this. He says, when we begin to forgive, however, we feel a real, though perhaps reluctant, wish that some good things might come that weasel's way. The feelings of goodwill is likely to be weak and hesitant at the start, and we are almost bound to backslide into malice along the way. But if we feel any stirrings of benevolence inside of us, any hint that it will be all right with us if some modest bit of good fortune comes our enemy's way, we can be sure we have teamed with God in a modest miracle of healing. Now, again, as Smeads indicates, this is perhaps the hardest part of forgiveness, and it's certainly the part that takes the longest. And I think we should also say here and clarify that forgiveness and reconciliation are not necessarily the same thing, nor is uh, forgiveness synonymous with restoring trust. You see, forgiveness is a gift we give to people, but trust is something that has to be earned over time. Not only that, but you can forgive someone without being reconciled to them or without continuing the relationship uh, the way that it was before, or as if nothing has happened. And again, hopefully we'll get into more of those nuances next week, but I just thought I would mention them because it's important that you understand that those are not the same thing and that trust takes time. It's not the same as extending forgiveness. 
And so this is what forgiveness is. We tell the truth about what happened by naming the wrong, by confronting the wrongdoer if possible. Then we work towards having compassion and pity towards them. Next, we have to absorb or cancel the debt by bearing it ourselves and by giving up the right to get even. And then finally, we need to release the person or revise our feelings about them by willing their good. And so to close here, I just want to end by talking a little bit more about how do we do this? Or in other words, what resources can help us, particularly when we are stuck forgiving someone? Well, I think there's a couple of things. Number one, I think being in community where there is accountability is a huge resource. You see, as you open up, as you and I open up about what's going on inside of us, as it relates to unforgiveness or bitterness in our hearts to those who we are in community with, what happens is that the community then is able to come alongside of us and to empathize with us and to love on us and care for us, but they are also able to nudge us towards a path of forgiveness. Now, if you are a part of a community that is coming alongside of someone who is struggling, let me just say a couple things to that. I think number one, we have to be careful and we have to be spirit-led in terms of knowing when and how hard to push someone. Because again, forgiveness is a process that may take some time. But if we perceive that, no, that there is no willingness uh, to forgive or there's no effort being made to move towards that, then I do think that it is our job as fellow uh, brothers and sisters in Christ to urge that person to begin the process of forgiveness and healing. And no, this is not easy. And yes, sometimes it's possible that we could even hurt the person ourselves by adding new trauma to them if we're not careful. However, though, as followers of Jesus, one of our greatest jobs is to encourage each other to obey the scriptures and to hold each other accountable when we don't. And as I said earlier on in the message, forgiveness is a command and therefore we have to help each other obey it. And so that would be one resource for helping us forgive when we are stuck. I think another really great resource is prayer and lamenting. You see, there's no doubt that, as I said earlier, forgiveness involves pain and loss. And because of that, forgiveness includes grief and sorrow. And yes, it's, it's good and it's right and it's okay to express that grief and that sorrow before others. But ultimately, I think it is best, or I think ultimately, in order to find true healing, you have to express those things to God. You see, actually, nearly half of the Psalms themselves are prayers of lament. And I'm not sure totally how or why it works. I just know that when you and I take our grief and our sorrow before the Lord in prayer, He somehow begins to heal us and encourage us and strengthen us in such a way that you and I are different than before we prayed. And so maybe some of you here today who are stuck in terms of forgiving someone, maybe one of the first steps you can take is to take some time to spend some time in prayer this week, perhaps even journaling out your prayers, where you express to God in an unfiltered way, right? Like this is why it's better to do this before God than to people because he can handle it. He can handle your raw emotion. Again, we see that displayed for us in the Psalms. And maybe you, again, you, you express to him in an unfiltered way the grief, the loss, the anger that you feel for what happened to you. 
And as you get that out, maybe the next thing you need to do is to pray and to ask him to give you the grace and the strength that you need in order to begin the process of forgiveness. And so certainly prayer is a critical resource to help us in this. The last resource, and maybe the most powerful, is by remembering our own need for forgiveness by meditating on the gospel. You see, I didn't really talk about it much, but one of the things that makes the parable so ridiculous is the size of the debt that the king forgives. You see, in verse 24, we are told that the servant owes 10,000 talents to the king. Now, if you look at your footnote in your Bible at the bottom, what you'll see is that one talent is worth about 20 years of an annual wage, which given how long people lived back then was essentially a lifetime worth of work. And so in other words, what this is saying is that the man owed about 10,000 lifetimes worth of work to the king. And yet the thing that is also ridiculous is that he tells the king, king, be patient with me and I will repay you everything. And you're left thinking like, yeah, right, that's literally impossible. And yet, as you and I know, in this parable, we are the servant and God is the king. And in Jesus Christ and in his death on the cross, you and I have been forgiven an impossible debt of sin that we can never pay back. And because of that, we are called to forgive others. As C.S. Lewis famously said, to be a Christian means to forgive the inexcusable because God has forgiven the inexcusable and you. And so ushers, you can go ahead and make your way uh, down here. We're going to take communion in a second, and I'm going to pray. But before uh, they come down, I just want each of us to think about and to meditate on all that God has forgiven you in Christ. As you come and you grab this cup and this, uh, this, this cup and this bread, I want you to just think about all the sin, all of the mess, all of the junk that God has forgiven you. And then I want you to just ask the Lord to search your heart and to see, is there anybody in your life that the Lord brings to your mind that he wants you to just, maybe it's just a baby step today, but to begin the process towards forgiving them. And so again, come down, take the bread, take the cup, remember our Lord's broken body and his shed blood and all the cost that it took to absorb your and I debt. And then when you're ready, you can take the elements on your own during this next song. But before we do that, let me, let me pray for us. Father, even as you uh, talk about in the prayer that you taught us to pray, Lord, you said, our Father who are in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Forgive us this day. Wait, no, forgive us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. Lord, it's, it's the fact that you have forgiven us this impossible, inexcusable debt. It's through that that we then have the power and the grace and through your Holy Spirit that we can forgive others. And so, Father, as we take the bread and as we take the cup, Lord, I pray you would do a miracle of grace in our hearts. Lord, if there's anyone in this room who has unforgiveness or bitterness in their heart, would you begin today to help them to take a step towards forgiveness? And Lord, it's in Jesus' name that I pray this. Amen.